Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. And lots of excitement in technology. They they arrested the big uh, cybersecurity... Yeah, the cybersecurity guy, Zane Quasar, and he, um, he's he got a six-year sentence. I'll talk about oh. what exactly he did. I was thinking about the other guy that got arrested this oh, week. Oh, that, yeah. Now, the other guy they arrested, of course, is Julian Assange. He's the WikiLeaks guy. Uh-huh. I'll talk also about Julian Assange. And then um, everybody is, like, worried whether... Amazon Alexa is listening in on them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big controversy going on about that. And uh, this week we're going to feature Daniel Stewart Butterfield. He's the co-founder of Flickr and also the co-founder of Slack. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. I'm glad he showed up to work today. That's right. Well, we got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. Last week, I asked you about the address line of my iPad. When I'm looking at a site, it says not secure when I'm looking at dslreports.com or not secure when I'm looking at espn.com as examples. When I put HTTPS in front of it to get secure socket layer, say on DSL reports, it returns to the non-secure socket layer site. I can't get a secure socket layer connection. What is wrong? What's going on here with my iPad? Well, Arnie, this is the thing. We're looking at a browser configuration. You can configure your browser to support secure socket layer or not. So you've got to go in and and configure your browser. I had no trouble doing it myself. If I put it in specifically, I can come up with the secure socket layer connection, but my browser is configured to support SSL, secure socket layer. And of course, what secure socket layer means is that uh, your browser and the website you're talking to set up a data stream that is encrypted So somebody who could intercept that data stream between the two endpoints would not be able to know what you're saying because they would only see an encrypted signal and they wouldn't see it in in plain text. So it's more secure uh, to use a secure socket layer, particularly if if you're logging into an account with, uh, you know, username and password. You want that to be protected. If you're not using a virtual private network, then that's the only encryption you got to protect yourself. So, for instance, let's suppose, you didn't tell me which browser you had, but let's suppose you've got Internet Explorer. What you would do, you'd open the Internet Explorer, click on Tools, then you'd click on Internet Options, then you would click on Advanced tab, and then you could check or uncheck the options for Use SSL 2.0, Use SSL 3.0. 
you could you could check both SSL 2.0 and SSL 3.0, and then it will use both of them when they're available. Then you click OK, and boom, your Internet Explorer will support the secure socket layer. Now, for instance, if you've got Chrome, you'd open up your Chrome browser, click on the Chrome menu button, click Settings, scroll down to System, or enter Proxy into the Search Settings field, open the Proxy Settings, Under the proxy settings, click on the advanced tab, and then you would check or uncheck SSL 2.0 or SSL 3.0. Same thing. Once you check them and use it, boom, Chrome is configured for secure socket layer. Now, the good news is Safari, which is the native browser in the the iPad, supports secure socket layer by default. So you don't have to do anything there. So, uh, Arnie, you should not have a problem here once you configure your router or your browser properly. We got an email from Ken Hutchinson. Dear Dr. Schertz, could you explain why it requires such a huge number of hard drives and a special algorithm that had to be developed, several supercomputers, and years of calculations to arrive at an image of the black hole that was revealed this week? And was that image possible because the black hole's accretion disk is almost perpendicular to our line of sight? Thanks, Ken Hutchinson. Well, uh, Ken, let me, this will be a little bit of a longer explanation, but this is really interesting, so I want to spend some time on it. This was a huge breakthrough imaging the black hole this week. Now, of course, a black hole is a very dense uh, object in space. Say a star could collapse into almost a point and create a very dense, uh, dense space, point in space, with very, very high gravity as you get close to it. And if you've got a very massive black hole and it collapses, it could be uh, it, it could be create quite a distur- disturbance in space. And it turns out the gravitational field is so strong around the black hole that not even light can escape. The gravitational fit it actually attracts light, the photons, and they cannot even escape. And the point of no return where once you go so close to the black hole that you can't get away from it because the gravitation is so strong, that's called the event horizon. Once you cross over the event horizon, you are gone. Wow. So when you look at a black hole, you just see like a disk with nothing in it because once they get into that area, you'll just see the outline of the event horizon. But once anything goes into the event horizon, you can't see anything. So the black hole itself actually is invisible and the only way to see it is that around the black hole just as as mass is being ripped up as it's being pulled into that torrent it it actually um glows glows very brightly as it's being wrapped apart and so that area around the edge where the mass is being ripped apart as it falls into the black hole is called the accretion layer and so what you see is you see this black object in front of the glowing accretion layer. And no matter what direction you look, you're always going to going to see it. Now, they actually imaged a black hole that, get this, was 53 million light years away. 53 million light years away. That means that the black hole that we were looking at, that light was emitted 53 million years ago and it took, it's such a long distance away, it took 53 million years for the light to get here. That's really hard to wrap your mind around, That's a, isn't So it? it's 53 million light years away. Now get this, this, this black hole, it's a supermassive black hole, M87, 
And the, the mass of this black hole is equal to 6.5 billion of our suns. We take one of our suns, you take 6.5 billion of our suns mm. and put them in a point, and that's this massive black hole. Wow. This is a huge black hole. So what they what happens is large, uh, you know, large large constellations in 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 space like the Milky Way. Uh, the, the center of that there's always a black hole. So these large um, uh, c- c- collections of stars like the Milky Way are always sort of organized by these by these black holes. Now to look at this particular black hole is equivalent to viewing a donut on the on the surface of the moon. Wow, that's how much resolution you need. It's equivalent to to looking at a donut uh, on the moon. So you need a very high-resolution re- uh, telescope to see it. Now, there's one problem when you're looking at an object 53 million light years away. Uh-huh. That light has got to go through a lot of space before it gets here. And it turns out there's so much space dust that the visible light never gets here. So you have to basically use longer wavelengths. So you can only see that far if you use radio telescopes that have longer wavelengths, radio waves, rather than visible light waves. And so they create – and the second problem is that the longer the wavelength, the lower the resolution. So the the, the smallest object that you can see with a telescope is sort of proportional to the wavelength divided by the aperture or the size of the telescope. So it turns out if you have a longer wavelength – to have the same resolution, you have to have a bigger telescope with a bigger aperture. And so when they did the calculation, what is it going to take to see this black hole 53 million light years away? It turns out that at the wavelength they were using, the aperture had to be the size of the Earth. Now, that's hard to make a telescope that has the diameter of the Earth. So what they did... Uh, they created what they called the Event Horizon Telescope. They're looking to try to see this Event Horizon by looking at the, the black hole in front of the accretion layer. And so they actually took radio telescopes from around the world. Uh, there were eight of them, actually. There were two in Chile that they used. There was one in Spain, one in Mexico, one in Arizona, one and two in Hawaii, and one in Antarctica. So they took these eight radio telescopes and they... They figured if we could knit them together as one, as one telescope, in other words, if we could coordinate the signals that they're receiving using mathematical formulas to, to make them appear like one giant telescope, then we could have something would have the equivalent of the aperture of the Earth. So what they did, though, they back in April of 2017 is when they took the data, actually, and they took the data over a week. And, of course— the Earth is rotating, so these all of these points are moving on the Earth. So they're actually picking up, they're actually filling in spots in the aperture as the Earth moves. And so over five days, they collected all of the data from these radio telescopes. Now, that was the signals coming in, the phase of it. You know, that's, there, there's a lot of data. They collected it all, everything. And they stored it on hard drives. When they collected the data for what, one week's worth of data from these eight telescopes uh, filled five was equal to five petabytes of data mm. right and that in order to, to store five petabytes on hard drives they, they had like you know terabyte you know 10 terabyte hard drives they had 10 t- they had they had half a ton of hard drives 
and there was too much data to send it over the Internet. So they just stored all the data locally at each one of the radio telescopes. Then they collected all the hard drives and, and, and mailed them. Now, so they had all this data from these from these telescopes, but then they had to figure out how can we do a calculation because they, they actually had to adjust for any phase differences between the units. They had to do a lot of calculations. And in addition, this was a very sparsely filled aperture, so there, there was not a unique answer. It was, it's not like you could take that aperture and then calculate the image. You'd have to guess an image to see whether an image that you guessed was equivalent to what you would get with these radio telescopes. It was an interactive kind of thing, and it took a lot of processing. And they developed an, an algorithm called CHIRP, Continuous High Resolution Image Reconstruction Using Patch Priors. And... Um, and this was a um, this was an algorithm that 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 had been invented by a um, I can't I can't remember who it was by by a young intern she was actually no, she was actually a PhD student at the time and she invented this algorithm and she led the the processing team there was so much processing to do with all of this eight petabytes of data that actually they had to get several supercomputers it took two two years of calculations. And they, and they were worried that maybe the the images that they seeded this as they were trying to do was kind of bias the results. So they had four independent teams doing it who would seed it in different ways. And so sort of the, the test was, do these four independent teams all get the same image? And they did. They did get the same image. And so after they had done all of this calculation uh, – they finally got the picture of the black hole, and it was exactly what theory would have predicted. They actually had the image uh, about three months ago, but they kept it under wraps because they wanted to actually actually have a big reveal. And so they had mm-hmm. the big reveal this week, and it's quite exciting because this is the first time that a black hole has been imaged so this is actually a big deal, and now they're going to do further refinement of it, and they're going to try to figure out uh, some of the refined theories regarding black holes. This was predicted by Einstein 100 years ago, wow. and it was all and it all matched up with his uh, with his calculations. But uh, keep your distance from the black hole. Yeah, it you, could work out badly. You, you, don't, you don't want. Yeah, you don't. Now, one thing is, as you go into a black hole, you you uh, time speeds up. So if you want to go into the future, just jump into a black hole. <laughs> But the problem uh, is, uh, you, you'll never come back. So it's the present is scary enough. So jumping into a black hole, it's a it, you know. It's well, a, how far into the future would it take you? Yeah, it's a it's a bad it's a mystery. It is. It it is a mystery. We need to find somebody we can dispose of to throw into a black hole so they can tell us what happened. Exactly. Now we got an email from Gina in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, a friend of mine had her Facebook account stolen. She's having trouble getting it back. Mm. Yeah, I, I knew somebody who had their face, Facebook account stolen, and they, they didn't get it back. They lost really? They lost all the pictures and everything. Yeah. You, you know, in their case, you see, you <clears throat> well, this is not – you have to have a trusted friend. So if, if, if your account is stolen and you've identified two or three trusted friends – who can who can vouch for you? Then you can go through the trusted friend methodology, and your trusted friends can vouch that you are who you are, and they will revert the password and give it back to you. But this particular person didn't have any trusted friends and didn't have any way to prove that they were who they were, they, and they didn't get it back. Um, 
Uh, so anyway, let's go back to Gina's email. So her, so her friend's also having a trouble getting her Facebook account of, account back. So now I'm worried about my account. Is something I can do to keep it more secure? Enjoy the podcast, Gina and Fairfax. Well, Gina, there are several things you can do to lock down your account. Well, first of all, you want to choose a, a strong password, uh, one that's easy to remember. Uh, you also want to choose a secret question that no one would know the answer to, even people that are close to you. Like you don't say, "What's the name of my dog?" You don't. You don't want to. You don't want to have a secret a secret question that somebody else is going to be able to guess because the secret question is a is is an avenue to change the password. So you don't you, you, you want to have a secret question that nobody's going to know except you. Now, if you really want to secure your Facebook account, and this is what I truly recommend, is you enable two-factor authentication. If this is enabled, whenever anybody tries to log into your account, Facebook will send a text message to your cell phone with a security code. And then you enter that security code into the website and you're in. So, Somebody cannot log into your account, even if they have your password, if they don't have your phone. So two-factor authentication is the way to protect your Facebook account. Now, if you want to enable two-factor authentication on your Facebook account, it's easy to do. Log into Facebook. You know, click on the down arrow on the right side of the blue bar near the top of the screen. Click on Settings. And then in the far left column, there will be something called Security and Login. Find the line that's labeled two-factor authentication and click that, and then you want to edit it because you're going to have to put in a phone number that they send to you, and boom. Once you've configured two-factor authentication, you are good to go. There's a similar process where you can configure it on your mobile app, too. I gave you sort of the, um, the, 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 the computer version. Now, from now on, you will always have to have physical access to your mobile phone before you can log in. So just make certain you keep your mobile phone with you. We got an email from Andy in Leesburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I need help with my internet, with an internet issue. Several websites that used to load just fine don't load anymore. They just sit there or and try to load forever or I get an error message. Most websites look okay. Just a handful of specific sites they won't load. I don't think it's a problem with my browser because the same sites fail to load no matter which browser I try. I also don't think it's a problem with the internet connection because all the other computers in the house load the websites without a problem. Can you help me fix this? My computer is a Lenovo laptop with Windows 10, Andy and Leesburg. Well, there are several possible issues that can cause this type of problem, but I think you've already ruled out two of them since you've tried multiple browsers and the other computers in your house are working normally. Now, one possibility is that your PC is infected with malware, which is which is hydra- which is hijacking your web browser, at least attempting to. Now, the first thing I'd recommend is that you run all the scans mentioned, uh, that you know, do all the scans uh, that that you need to to check for malware to track this down, remove any malware that might have made it into your hard drive. So that's the first thing you want to do. Do a malware scan. Now, if that doesn't fix the problem, the next thing to do is to try flushing your computer's DNS cache, domain name. Server cache. See, when <clears throat> what this is, whenever you are going to a website, say like www.stratford.edu, it will go out to the domain name server. It will give them that name of the Stratford site. The domain name server will send back the IP address, which is a number, which is a, uh, a binary number. It will send back the IP address to your computer 
and then you'll use the IP address to actually go to that website. So the domain name system converts English um, English domain names into actual IP web addresses. But what your computer does, it will store uh, that information. So suppose you're always going to stratford.edu. Well, your your computer will just store the 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 IP address of Stratford University. So instead of going out to the DNS, it'll just read it internally from the internal DNS cache. So what happens is that you may have a corrupted DNS DNS cache cache, and it's and 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 so you're never actually going to the website. So so the next thing, and since this this is a problem, this these the, the, this is a problem that 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 you have only on some sites. It's, it it could easily be the DNS cache that corrupted. So you want to sign into Windows as as an administrator. Then you press Windows Control S key to open the search box. And then you, to search, you want to search for CMD. That's the, that's the command window, CMD. Then you right-click on the command prompt and select run as an administrator. So you want to run the command, uh, you know, the command window as an administrator. Now in the command box, there, you, you want to type a particular command that, which is going to clear the DNS, uh, the, the DNS cache. You write ipconfig, ipconfig, slash, flush DNS. IPconfig slash flush DNS, and you press enter, and that that I, that that IPconfig command with the slash DNS will then clear your cache, and your cache should be ready to go, and that ought to fix your problem. Excellent. Listen, we love your emails. Do indeed. Email us at Talk at stratford.edu, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 103.9 FM HD2. And you can find us on the web at stratford.edu. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. 
Yes, today we're going to feature Daniel Stewart Butterfield. Daniel Stewart Butterfield is a Canadian entrepreneur best known for being co-founder of the photo-sharing website Flickr and of the team messaging application Slack. Butterfield was born in Lund, British Columbia in 1973, and he grew up there for three years. And he, and he grew up there, and for the first three years of his life, he lived in a log cabin without running water while in a commune. You see, back in uh, 1968, his dad uh, dodged the Vietnamese draft for the Vietnam War, and he crossed the border into Canada, and he went living in a commune. There he met his uh, future wife. They got married in the commune. And uh, and Daniel was was born there in the commune, and they, you know, in the beginning they they just you know they were they were okay in a log cabin without running water, but but when uh, but when uh, when Daniel was five years old, his parents thought you know maybe we better better get a regular life and get plumbing, so they moved to Victoria, British Columbia. They went to the Julian Assange School of uh, Personal Hygiene, apparently. That's right. Now, as a kid, Butterfield taught himself how to code. He always liked to play around with computers. He, he was educated at St. Michael's University School in Victoria. He made money while he was going to, going to school. Um, that, that was really high school, uh, uh, designing, um, designing websites. He, re- he received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. Because you see, he was, you know, growing up in a commune with his, you know, his parents' hippies. He was into philosophy of life. So he got a Bachelor of Arts in <laughs> Philosophy from the University of Victoria in 1996. In 1998, he got a Master of Philosophy from Cambridge, where he specialized in the philosophy of biology, the philosophy of cognitive science, and the philosophy of the mind. He was really trying to become the total man. Renaissance man. Yes. Mm-hmm. In 2000, he, uh, with a friend, he, he built a startup called GradFinder. It was, a, I guess it was uh, for, grad, for grad school. And so he, um, he, he had a startup and they, they, they did that for a while. And they, they sold it for a few bucks after a year and then for a few years. And after they sold GradFinder.com, he worked as a freelance web designer. Now in 2000 he you know he went from he, he went on vacation from uh, um, uh, from Canada down to San Francisco and that's where he met Katharina Fake Katharina Fake uh, uh, he she was a blogger there in San Francisco he he kind of liked her he said why don't you come back to Canada with me so Kater- <laughs> Katharina we Fake we got this great log cabin that's right no I, that, yeah so Katharina Fake had went back to Canada with him and they got married in 2002 actually. Wow. Uh, in 2002, his dream was to make a massive online multiplayer game. So they funded Ludicorp. Ludicorp, mm-hmm. he did it with Katarina Fake, his, uh, his new wife, and Jason Klassen, who's a, um, who's a programmer. And they began working on this massive multiplayer online game called Game Neverending. Mm. They worked on this thing. They worked on it. They worked on it. And it was a beautiful game, but they couldn't get anybody to play it. So while it was a gaming success, it was a financial failure. And so that they so they said, okay, we've we've got this great game, we've got all this great technology. What are we gonna do with it? 
So it turned out that they had created a lot of features that were really interesting. They 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 created a way for um, for players to upload images to the game so they could change the background. They actually created a system where you could you could have friends on the website and you know and, and having friends. This was before Facebook days, and so and you, so you, you you could have friends. Uh, they they had uh, you could you could share things. You could chat. They had all kinds of social media, advanced social media features built into the game just as a byproduct of building the game. Hmm. So what they did, they said, well, why don't we just break out these features that are kind of interesting? So they broke out those features and they created a photo sharing website called Flickr where you could you could upload photos, you could, you could share things. And, and so Flickr had – a lot of really advanced features. They had like a data share API, application programming interface, the first that ever been done because they figured what good is data if you can't share it? And if people use data, you get more out of it. And so using this data share API, that data was was accessible to people, to developers and others to do things with it. They invented tagging, you know, way long before Facebook was ever around where you tag a picture. They invented hashtags, which are used by, you know, used by Twitter now. And so he felt that data should be shared. He, he basically, these are all ideas that, that, that came from the commune. You know, everything is like <laughs> public property mm-hmm. and we just share and share alike. And that was the whole idea of this. And they created some really advanced, advanced techniques. And so Flickr became very popular because of all these advanced tech, uh, all these advanced techniques, and it was very scalable. And in March 2005, um, they um, they sold it. They sold it to Yahoo for either it's between twenty two and twenty five million dollars. We're not really sure. Did they share any of that money? They yeah. could share it with me. Yeah, they. I think they. I don't think they had investors in this thing. I. I, I just think that the three of them split the money, twenty-five million, twenty-two to twenty-five million, and it turned out Butterfield stayed on as general man manager of Flickr. Funny yeah. how the sharing thing works only until it gets the money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then you know after you know after they got the money, he and Katarina only stayed together for another six years, and then boom, they they split. Mm. But um, he left. He left Yahoo July twelfth, two thousand and eight. But this Flickr, and I, I love Flickr. I, I, I use Flickr. It's really, a, it's really well written. But, but you know, as always, when Yahoo buys a company, they ruin the company, and so, <laughs> and so it got over time, and all the people left, and the then the innovation just got sucked out of it. But, mm-hmm. but it was it was a great product, and I I've, I still use it. But it just it, but the innovation cycle just just ended. Get this: in two thousand and six, Daniel was named. Uh, <clears throat> The, in the time on in the time 100 list times list of the 100 most influential people in the world and he appeared on the cover of newsweek magazine so this flicker was really ahead of its time uh when he developed it and he and he said you know he always regretted. he said you know we sold out too soon they they could have they could have kept flicker probably sold it for a billion dollars and they sold it for 25 million so he <clears> said you know we we sold out too soon we didn't know what we were doing so and he and he never did build the game that he that he wanted, but that was his dream. So he, um, I think he and Katarina they stayed married until two thousand and seven, and then they got a divorce. Uh, and now he's uh, he's on he's on the market again. Now after <laughs> after quitting Yahoo, he started another company called 
tiny speck. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't say this. When he was in the commune, his his middle name wasn't Stuart. It was Dharma. Ah. It's more of a hippie name. It is very hippie. He was Daniel Dharma Butterfield. And um, and when he was 12 years old, he looked at his dad. He says, Dad, this Dharma's got to go. And his dad said, okay, what do you want? He said, I want Stuart. So he changed his, so he changed his name to Daniel Stuart Butterfield instead of Daniel Dharma Butterfield. Interesting. And so, and he goes by the name, Stuart's his middle name, but that's the one he picked. So he, he goes by Stuart when people just talk to Stewie. him. Stewie. Stewie, yeah. So after he quit Yahoo in 2008, he started another company, Tiny Speck. And he said, we're going to finish this never-ending game. We're going to really knock it out of the park because, uh, you know, I got this whole Flickr thing was a sidetrack. I'm going to go back to my true dream. So he, they started, so he started Tiny Speck to actually work on the, and the, the version of never-ending and never-ending game that they did this time, they called it Glitch. So they started working on Glitch. And this Glitch, it had amazing graphics. It had a great imaginative storyline. He just thought, this game is fantastic. <laughs> it is going to take over the world. He raised $17.5 million, and the game finally launched in 2012. To and? A, to a thud. <laughs> they couldn't get anybody to use it. Now, the <laughs> game was a huge success. But it was a financial failure, so they shut it down in 2012. So then he went back to the team. He says, hey, guys, what what are we going to do now? And so it turned out that they'd created a lot of great technology uh, in making Glitch. So they they a lot of they had a lot of collaboration tools and instant messaging and communication methods that they'd embedded into Glitch. So Butterfield, he says, you know. Why don't we take all this interesting stuff that we're, that cr- we created to make um, glitch, you know, work and, and interact with the users, and let's pull it out and make it into something else? Mm-hmm. So they did that again, and they came up with a program called Slack, and it's an instant message-based team communications tool, and uh, and Slack took the market by storm. I mean. Within like three months, they they had like 120,000 users on it, and people loved it because what it did – see, everybody at all these companies, they have have Dropbox, they've got Google Apps, they've got GitHub, GitHub, they've got Heroku, they've got Zendesk, all these applications. And then somebody says, oh, I'd like to – you know, and you try to interact with people. Everything is scattered everywhere. You know, you share a Dropbox file, you share this file, you share – you know, a Microsoft Drive file. And so what Slack does, all of your resources, it knits together all of your resources into one hub, and it becomes the center of all your business activity. Moreover, if somebody makes a comment on one of your, on one of your um, uh, documents, uh, Slack saves it. Hmm. And so no matter where they make a comment on your documents, you can – and they've got this great search engine. You can search through the comments, and it's very easy for teams to interact. This thing was so powerful and so well-written that once people started using it, more and more and more people started using it. And then businesses started using it because it made team building so much better. So Slack just started taking off. So it was released – it was publicly released February of 2014, 
and Slack grew at a weekly rate of 5 to 10 percent. It had more than 120 users by August of 2014. So that'd be February, March, April, May, June, July, by six months. That was, and most of those were just word of mouth. By 2014, Slack had earned $1.5 million because he actually had a paid version if he wanted to have more features. And he was already earning money. He raised $60 million in venture capital because everybody thought, hey, this Slack is really good. By 2015, he raised another $340 million in venture capital. By that time, by 2015, he had 2 million daily users, and 570,000 of those users were paid users. In 2015, Slack was named by Inc. Magazine as the company of the year. Slack is just taking over businesses by storm. In 2015, Stewart was named Wall Street Journal's technology innovator and was awarded TechCrunch's founder of the year, Crunchy. Now... Is that chocolate enrobed? Yeah, so it is crunchy. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they also give, they 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 give lots of crunchies every year. He he always felt though that he sold Flickr too early. Now he wants to build Slack into something as pervasive as Microsoft, except something that you can love. Ah, <laughs> gotcha. And so here you go, uh, Daniel Stewart Butterfield, formerly known as Daniel Dharma Butterfield. <laughs> uh, Always wanted to build a multi-user game. Never actually successfully did. Oh, by the way, the the second game, I didn't mention it, that uh, glitch. They released the entire game as an open source product. So anybody could use it. So now there's an open source community that's building on that game. And it'll probably be released as an open source, non-revenue generating game. So at least all of their work was not wasted. So Daniel Stewart Butterfield is a man who knows how to build scalable software. In both companies, he had to pivot in order to make money. Ah, there you go. There you go. Everything you want to know about Daniel, Daniel Stewart Butterfield. Hope you're paying attention because you can take that knowledge just imparted upon you free of charge and turn it into free food by playing the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m., 103.5 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. We're all part of the Federal News Network. You can follow us at uh, WFED Tech Talk on Periscope and watch us do the show. Learn more about the programs at Stratford by University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Ah, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can sit down now. And and, and keep the popcorn off the floor, okay? Keep it off the floor, yeah. And, of course, welcome back to Classroom of the Airways. This is not merely a radio show. This is a classroom. And we're going to assess whether our students otherwise known as listeners, are actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. We do this with a pop quiz. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms, and you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I was talking about Daniel Stewart Butterfield. He, of course, is the co-founder of the photo-sharing website Flickr and the team messaging application Slack. When he was on the commune, living in the cabin, he had a slightly different name. It wasn't Daniel Stewart Butterfield, but what was his middle name back then? Well, please, pick up your phone and keep us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're living in a log cabin without heat or water in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, call us on the wild card line. It's 877-936-9333. And of course, anyone else anywhere else may try us on the wild card line. 877-936-39333. And now, once again, here. Dr. Richard Jertz. And if you're calling from a sailboat in the Chesapeake Bay, you can reach us on Skype. Simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1 and your call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for price distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your call. So, dial now. Okay, let's talk about the Zane Kayser. He was a member of the Russian-speaking cyber gang who, cyber gang who was jailed for more than six years in the UK. He, of course had a company that used porn sites to distribute malware. And he used porn sites in more than 20 countries. He placed fake ads on these porn sites. And you'd click on this ad on the porn site. I don't know what they were selling, but probably some type of porn. And once you would click that ad, uh, you would it would download software. And then all of a sudden, your computer would have ransomware on it. And they would demand... Uh, And it would say something like this, that you have demands from law enforcement or a government agency that claim that an offense had been committed and that you as a victim have to pay between $300 and $1,000 to unlock your device. Ah. It's like cyber lock. And Mm -hmm. so once people had their device locked up, then they would would have to go in and they would use cryptocurrency to make the payments. And it turned out that uh, Kayser, he was the he was the ringleader of this, and they said they know that he took in at least a million dollars of financial accounts, but they think he took in much more, but they could track down a million dollars. 
And they, they, they noted that he had infected millions of computers across multiple jurisdictions. And whenever Kazar would put, he would purchase advertising on a porn site under the name of King, I mean, then eventually the porn site would realize that this was a malicious ad and they would try to cancel it. And if they tried to cancel his ad, he would threaten to shut them down with a distributed denial of service and just bring their website to a screeching halt. So many of them just left the ads up because they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to lose access to all of their paying clients. Mm-hmm. Now, so the, uh, they, they were just continuing to do that. Finally, they, they, this whole gang started in September 2012, and it ran until 2018 when he was eventually arrested. So I'm glad they got that guy off the streets. Gotcha. Keep on going here. Thousands of employees are listening to your Alexa conversations. Not only is Alexa listening to you speak, when, you know, into your Echo smart speaker, but also an Amazon employee may be also listening too. Amazon employs a global team to transcribe the voice commands captured after the wake word is detected and feeds them back into software to help improve Alexa's grasp of human speech. Amazon reports reportedly employs thousands of full-time workers and contractors in several countries including the U.S., Costa Rica, Romania, to listen to as many as a 1,000 audio clips in shifts that last up to nine hours. Amazon confirmed to CNN Business that it hires people to listen to what customers say to Alexa. But Amazon said, we take security and privacy very, very uh, seriously. The company uh, uh, notes that only a small, extremely small number of interactions from, ra- from a random set of customers are viewed. And the report said that Amazon doesn't explicitly tell Amazon if it employs. Oh, the other thing is it doesn't. People don't really know that that people are listening in. Amazon just says that we have methods to improve the speech recognition to make it a better service for you. Okay. Now, people can opt out on it if they want to, but it's very hard to figure out how to do that. Gotcha. Okay. Why, we have somebody who would like to play our little game. Let's go here to line one. This is Thomas, who is calling us from... Well, Thomas, where are you calling us from? Oops, Thomas, are you there? Hello, Thomas. Thomas, are you with us? Hello, Thomas. Okay, I can hear the phone coming back, but I don't have Thomas. All right, Doc, tell you what, let's talk about something else here and see if we can get Thomas on the line. All right. Why don't we talk about how to stop Amazon from listening to your to your Amazon recordings? How to stop it so that people won't... You know, look at what you're actually saying. So there is a way to keep them from listening in on your conversations for this research. You can open up the Alexa app on your smartphone and then uh, then click on the menu in the upper left-hand corner. Then you click on settings. Then you click on the option that says Alexa account. Then under the Alexa account menu, select the option that says Alexa privacy. And then under Alexa privacy... This is where you can tell them you don't want to do that. You can, you can. There's something called under Alexa privacy. Manage how your data improves Alexa. You can click on that, and you can simply turn that off. You can turn off manage how data improves Alexa because they improve it by letting humans listen to your voice, and then they they transcribe it. You can also slide off that help develop new features, and uh, and the. And then you won't. That'll also opt out of any humans listening to. So you notice in all this opt out, they never say that humans are listening in. But you can certainly certainly handle that. Uh, you can also view the history of all your recorded interactions with Alexa, uh, with your app, and you can delete that history. 
And under the Manage Skill Permission, you can find out which skills are requested permission to access data like your address, name, Amazon Pay, phone number, and all, and you can remove that permission from those apps. So there is a way to control your privacy. They just don't make it easy to figure out. All right, let's try this again. All right, here we go. We're going to go back to line number one, and this is Thomas. Thomas, are you there? Hello, Hello, Thomas, are you with us? Thomas? Well, we don't have Thomas. Tell you what, Doc, let's just move along, and what we're going to do is we're going to take a break here, and uh, Thomas had the right answer, so we'll give him the prize, but um, uh, this is, we're messing around with Thomas? No. Oh, well, so much for that. Thomas gets the prize. He's not there. But let me ask you that. Is this like an online course? See, he gave us the answer. Yeah, there you go. So we'll give him we'll give him the prize, right? We'll give him the prize. Don't know That's why the right. phone could, could have been right. him, could have been us, could have been AT and T. Who knows? It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Heard every Saturday on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. Watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking to technology. You know, tens of thousands of phones that are donated to charity are destroyed every year. Really? Yeah. And they're, and they're destroyed by electronics recyclers be, and instead of being, you know, given away like they were supposed to have been done. It turns out that the iPhone has an activation lock, which is an anti-theft feature that prevents new accounts from logging into the system without first putting in the original iCloud password. Now, they, Apple did this so that if a phone is stolen, it can't be used by someone else who stole it and didn't have the, the, the password. So that makes stolen phones less valuable. I think mm-hmm. it is really a good feature. Yeah. But you see, if you're going to donate your phone, you've got to remove that lock. If you don't remove the lock, there's... The phone's useless. The phone's useless, and all they can do is just put it in a shredder. So between 2015 and 2018, the Wire, Wireless Alliance uh, 
a recycling program, collected about 6 million cell phones in donation boxes. It turned out that 333,000 of them were worth were worth being were, were reusable. But of those 333,000, 33,000 were iCloud locked and they just had to shred them. So they've asked Apple if there would be a way that a certified reseller could unlock phones that have been legitimately donated and that if, if they could prove that the phone had been donated, whether Apple would unlock it. They're trying to do that. But mm-hmm. for those of you that are donating your cell phones for charity, make certain to unlock them first. This is funny. I mean, I'd never heard of this before. Had you before you came across this? No. Uh-uh. Obviously, a lot of people don't know about it. Cause... But it but I, but it means that that anti-theft feature is actually effective, yeah, that which, is. I, which I do like. Mm-hmm. You know, Stratford University uses a lot of technology in their in their programs. I, I thought I'd talk a little bit about it. Sure. So we use blended learning. Um, we have online programs as well as on ground, but even the on ground students use 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 an online platform because we like to have threaded discussions where students can, you know, share thoughts and and demonstrate critical thinking as they as they talk through problems. We also use the platform so students can look at the lecture material before the class begins. So when they go to class, they actually work on projects or have interesting interesting class discussions or group work, and they, they just don't have to sit down in a classroom and have a professor just drone on in a lecture. You can handle all that before you show up. That's really, really useful. The other thing that's useful in a blended course is that, you know, a lot of times people, you know, you know might be shy in the classroom so students might not say anything, and other people are always talking, but frequently the shy student, when they get in the thread of the discussion, blossoms. So it turns out that by having both online and on ground, it accommodates all different personalities. It works really well. The other thing that we do is all of our students have thin clients. So that means when they log on to their Stratford account, all the applications they need just show up on their desktop. So a thin client, basically, they're logging in to their own client, which is on our um, on the file servers at the uh, at data center out there in Ashburn. So they log on to that, and just the desktop is sent to their computer. So if they log in in the classroom to their account, all the applications they need for their class and all their classes are right there, as well as Microsoft Office. If they save any documents to their desktop, it goes to their it goes to their cloud account. They all have a, a terabyte of storage. But if they go, then go to a library and log on, all the applications are there too, just like they were in school. Or they go home, they're logged on. Whether they log on from a Mac or Windows, they have everything there. And that's really convenient. So the students always have the applications that they need. Uh, we've, got for, we've got a lot of virtual IT support applications. Our IT students, can when they log on, they've got virtual machines that they can use so they can install a Linux operating system, Windows operating system. They can they could install an Apache web server, they could install a, you know a, a Oracle, they could install Microsoft SQL. It's all virtual. You know, cuz this day and age actually if you work for a company, you rarely see the computers are off all in the data center. So they got all the virtual resources right there. In addition, we've got virtual switches, virtual routers so they can configure a whole you know, a whole data center with all the switching devices all remotely. And if you work for a, a job, that's what you do. But the beauty of it is when they're in the classroom, they have those resources. They go home, they have the resources. They go to the library of the resources, so they're always there. Then we've got all these full-text library re- resources. See, nobody actually likes to read books anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the way the way it yeah. is. So we've got everything online. So students have all the online resources that they have. They, they don't have to go into the library. Um 
libraries, what's interesting, used to be library, you'd go to the library to get a book, but now everything's online. So now our students go to the library to get help with writing or get help doing term papers or get, or get help doing research. So it becomes a learning resource center instead of a book repository. So all this technology, these applications, they support our nursing programs, health science programs, our IT programs, software engineering programs, business hospitality. It really, technology has really made a huge, huge difference to education. And we're leveraging it in all ways at Stratford University. Excellent. We got, uh, let's talk about Julian Assange. Yes. He was arrested in London, of course. He is founder of WikiLeaks. He's in British custody after losing uh, asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Basically because he smelled bad, right? Yeah, he smelled bad. He had bad attitude. And what really <laughs> te- what really teed them off was when he was when he started uh, hacking the Ecuadorian uh, Ecuadorian, uh, you know, documents and was going to do an expose on on Ecuador on WikiLeaks. They said, "Wait a minute here. You're turning against us and we're uh, yeah. helping you." So once he started doing that, phew, he was out. Of course, WikiLeaks uses the same technology that Wikipedia. Wiki, W-I-K-I, is Hawaiian for quick, quick. And so, uh, and so it's a quick way to, to edit things. So they use, the, they use the Wikipedia technology to create WikiLeaks. And, of course, he created WikiLeaks as an online portal to share documents that would hold powerful governments accountable. That's what he wanted. So he was, uh, and so, you know, governments were really quite upset with him. He was, uh, in 2010, he was accused of rape by... Um, by uh, by Sweden, and so he he didn't want to go back to Sweden for trial. He said he he denied it, but he still didn't want to risk the trial. So he went to the Ecuadorian embassy, and he and he asked for uh, asylum. And so they said okay. The previous president said okay. The previous president liked WikiLeaks, so he said okay, you can have asylum here. Uh, now Assange is from Australia. Uh, before he started WikiLeaks, he worked as a computer programmer. He is, as you'd expect, he was an activist. Um, he founded WikiLeaks with the goal of vetting and publishing primary source documents. In 2016, WikiLeaks released 10 million documents. It's a lot of documents. It got worldwide attention when it released a video of U.S. military helicopter of a U.S. military hel- helicopter gunning down civilians. At least that's what it looked like in Iraq mm-hmm. in 2007. The week the leak came from a former U.S. Army intelligence officer who's now named Chelsea Manning. Uh, in 2016, they, he published emails that came from the the, uh, the the candidacy of Hillary Clinton, and there you go. So now, listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And uh, go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out all of our programs, health science, hospitality, computer networking, software engineering, business, and When you find a program that you like, tell them that you heard about that program on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.